And now, my fine, fatted king, unless you release my friends... <laughs> you are just in time. Come, help me amuse her. Flash, look out! <laughs> Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Welcome to episode five of the Wookiee Genome Project, the podcast about everything Star Wars that isn't Star Wars. I am Diamond Rob Russo, the state assemblyman of of Geeksel. No, I did, I did, I did Geekslovenia. Yeah, I, I give up. <laughs> <laughs> I should have come up with a sooner. Anyway, I'm Diamond Rob Russo, and I just watched 20 minutes of vintage sci-fi trash. With me here to discuss it are Eric Strathers, Emily Lind. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, on this show, we explore the pop cultural DNA of the Star Wars films. Uh, that is the old uh, adventure serials, cowboy films, comic books, and pulp fiction that shape the saga we know and love today. We are winding up, actually, the, uh, the 1936 Flash Gordon serial. And uh, so I think we are on, we left off on episode seven, which is titled The Shattering Doom. If the, I can't imagine anyone would know who I was and not already know who you were. So I'm not really going to like say this is where you'd know Emily from. Um, but just in case it, later on <laughs> in the, in the distant future, someone's listening to it. Emily and I, uh, actually I, I pretty much met both of you this way. I think it's just from calling into steel show and then interacting with him and then, uh, being antagonized by his, uh, fan army. Um, no, not really. Um, I was, I just, I just finished, I just did the call-in show on Friday. That's when we're recording this. Um, I think I can refer to it as did the Colin show because I never getting let back on that thing. So oh, that's the geez. one I got to do. Uh, <laughs> um, it was a good time. It was a really good time. I, th I think the show turned out pretty well and it went on for a long time and I got to talk to Stephen Stanton, which was amazing. How great is he? He's, he's, he's just a, 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 just a gentleman and a scholar. As far as I'm concerned, he is, he is true blue and he knows so much about these things like he really did his homework like he's thought if you haven't listened if you're not a, a steel war supporter you should be and uh if you if you are or when you when you become one you should listen to that uh, bonus section because it's really good not because i'm in it but because uh, uh steven stanton like schools everybody on um all the ins and outs of peter cushing's life uh anyway the shattering doom now i remember when uh the title for episode one was announced and everybody was kind of scratching their heads because I don't think that people understood what it was referencing. You know, when you first heard the Phantom Menace, I it, well, we're all old here, right? So we, yeah, yeah, okay. So yes. I, yeah, I remember. Every, I remember. I liked the title, and I still like the title. But um, 
I remember everybody kind of like being like, that doesn't sound quite right. And then, and then we all realized that the empire strikes back might be the worst title for any movie in history. And, uh, but the Phantom Menace is real, super pulpy. It's like very, very adventure serial. And then you go, if you want to see something that's even more abstract and weird than that, I'd say the shattering doom. Like imagine a star Wars movie called star Wars episode, the shattering doom. I mean, uh, where do you, I don't even know what that's supposed to be in this, in this episode. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't, I don't have a clue what that references. No, I mean, like even like thinking about that title, having watched the episode, it's not something where you go, oh, that's what it meant. I have no idea what it's referring to. I think the main thing is it's supposed to sound cool at the end of episode six. It's like, come back next week, kids, to see chapter seven, The Shattering Doom. They're like, oh, gee, Willikers, I wonder what that's like. Talking to their other like, you know, I always picture like the the original audience for this being like the cast of Newsies. <laughs> Never Newsies. That's what I that's what I picture in my head. Like those are the kids who are going to see these movies. Um, But that is about the same time period, I think. So, so that's the 30s, right? Yeah. 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 I have not seen Newsies for a very, very long time. I think when I first saw it, it was a, it was a double feature with Beauty and the Beast. So what what was it like, your first eye-opening experience to this Flash Gordon serial? Oh, man, it was really weird. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but it's so silly. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that the, the genre itself stuck, you know. Of course, at that point, film and cinematography was a lot different. And obviously, this was... This wasn't even particularly high budget, you know, so I guess it wouldn't be judged as harshly as we're judging it. Actually, I find like just the idea of of serials themselves sort of interesting, like going to the theater for these like 20 minute stories. It's sort of it's sort of hard to wrap my head around. Yeah, it is. It is different. You know, I mean, you know, because that's just what you did. You went to the theater and you spent hours there. Go see a double feature and then there's a serial. And that was the hope that it would get you to come back and see whatever movie was there the next time. Sort of like when the when the Phantom Menace trailers were first hitting theaters, you had people who would pay to go see a movie just to get in and see the trailer. Because oh, I did that. Did you? Yeah, I did that for Star Wars and I did that when uh, the, the first Lord of the Rings movies came out. Oh, wow. I, I don't remember what Phantom Menace was in front of, but I remember my brother and I going to see um, 13 Days, which is the movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis, because the Fellowship of the Ring trailer was in front of it. The only reason we went to see that movie. <laughs> so, you know, maybe maybe this did drive people into the theater. I don't know. The story, it's like so circuitous. I can't tell. I think I think Rob has familiarity with the comic strip that it's from, and he's probably yeah. seen all the episodes already, but it's like, where, what's the plan here? It's like one minute they're free and the next minute they're captured, but then captured by different people. But now they're captured by the same people as, you know, two episodes before. It is very much a you can tell it's based on a comic strip because it's like in a comic strip, like something exciting has to happen each time. Right. So you kind of run out of ideas, I guess. And uh, but it does have this kind of like it's one thing after another quality that most Star Wars movies seem to have on their own. I think they, they're better at it. It's not as clumsy, but. You know, I think that there's a lot of the first time I see any one of them, I always like I don't even know what to think about it, because once I get out, it's like I don't they did so many things like one thing and another thing. And it's I feel like just bombarded by by all. it always takes me like a second viewing to really figure out what I actually feel about it. But yeah, so in this in in, in, in chapter seven, the shattering doom. So if you recall that uh, we were taken up to uh, King Volton the the uh master of the hawkmen um 
in their flying city because, you know, the, the fish people live underwater and the hawk people live in the clouds. It's a literal cloud city. And, um, what, what had happened at the, it's been, it's been a little bit, I mean, you know, when you hear this audience, it, it, it will have been a week, um, in between episodes, but, uh, the way we recorded these, it's actually over a month. Um, so <laughs> kind of having a hard time. I know that, um, I think right before this is when, uh, Dale Arden and princess aura have this conversation where princess aura says something like the only way to save flash is to pretend like you don't love him. So that, so that uh, King Volton will, will give him up to me or something like that. And so the, through the whole chapter, the whole hep- episode, Dale is this, in this weird position where she has to pretend like she doesn't care about Flash. She's really Even, bad at it. Yeah. 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 I wonder if that's a, I think, because we're going to have to talk about Gene Rogers at some point. That's that's the actress who, who played Dale. And although the character of Dale is criminally underwritten, um, it could have been a much more interesting character. Uh, I mean, it is it is the stereotypical damsel in distress if there ever was one. But um, I feel like Gene Rogers is, was a, a good enough uh, actress to usually like convey a lot of emotion, especially just because sometimes some episodes, all you really see is her face, but she's good at, at getting those emotions out there. I wonder if that's because she had, it's really subtle too, um, it, which was not always a thing in the 1930s. Like you, you know, there was a lot of big acting still because a lot of actors were coming to the movies from the stage she, she, I think the, the, the episode starts with her asking King Bolton if, if Flash is alive. He says, yes, he is, but she's got to keep pretending that she's not interested in him. And I guess she's supposed to be pretending to be interested in King Bolton, which is like, uh, it just gives me the shivers. I mean, he, he is a weirdo. Oh yeah, man. He like is way off the scale in this episode. He's just tap dancing on the bleeding edge of madness every second of his life. Just those laugh. What did you think of that? I mean, because we talked about his laughter, but uh, like Emily, when you when you finally saw this character, like, <laughs> what did you make of him? I mean, it's such a sort of like pantomime villain sort of character. Like it's it's so over the top. Um, yeah, it's it's almost like calling him a ham isn't really. It kind of misses the point entirely. <laughs> like, I don't know. He's not overacting. He's just shouting and laughing really loud. I don't, I'll tell you, I'll say this about, uh, I don't know what the name, the actress name, I'll have to look that up later, but, um, King Bolton gives me the impression of, if nothing else, uh, he, he's a guy who loves his job, whatever his job is. He, he's like, he must get up to go to work every morning with like a smile on his face. Cause he clearly <laughs> loves what he's doing. He does seem happy as a clam. Yeah. It's not like game of Thrones where like everybody's like set, like heavy is the head that wears the crown or something like that. Not so with King Bolton. He is. And the thing, the interesting thing about him, I, we, we, I think we touched on this last episode, is that he's, he's, he would be creepy, except that he never really does anything all that like pervy to Dale. Like he, like in this one, he puts on an honest to god shadow puppet show. I've never seen anything fill up time that like blatantly. Like, oh, we got six minutes to kill in this episode. What are we going to do? Well, let's just have one of the characters do a shadow puppet show. Like that is, that's about as. And yeah. not a particularly good shadow puppet show. No, like any six-year-old could do this. Like, also, so on the planet Mongo, like they have like bunnies and stuff. Like, how does he know that she's going to recognize these? I guess he wouldn't care. But well, I was sort of curious at what the very last shadow puppet that he did was. Hmm. I I was wondering the same thing. I couldn't tell. Like the first one is like the classic sort of rabbity thing, but then he's doing this other thing, and it's just sort of this blob. 
you got to wonder whether this was ad-libbed or not, whether they were like, he's got to do something to try and impress her. What, what can you do? Like, and like in the script, they had him like juggling or something and the actors like, I can't do that. Well, what can you do? Oh, I can do shadow puppets. All right, whatever. Just, we got, you know, <laughs> they're, they're going to pull our funding in about two hours. So you need to get this over with fast. All right. All right. Shadow puppets there. It just seems like the least impressive thing you can do. <laughs> I found it rather endearing. He he is kind of childlike in a way. I mean, he is like a a kind of grotesque caricature of a man, but um you can imagine like Ernest Borgnine or somebody could have really filled out this role. Yeah. <laughs> like a like a but there's nothing it, he takes an interesting character change like right after this episode. So uh Okay, so Okay, my notes. It's mostly about the shadow puppets. I don't. <laughs> I really liked that scene. I mean, I know that it's pointless and it's like it's eating up time, but I just it made me laugh because it's just bizarre. You know, there's only as far as I can. I think there's only one scene in any Star Wars movie that I can recall where another character is just showing off and there's nothing else that's happening, right? And that's when uh, 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 Anakin and, and, and um, Natalie Portman are in the, uh, I don't know, they're, it's like their dating phase, I guess, right? And he's like levitating some kind of space pair. Right, Is right. That, yeah. Yeah. And like, imagine if in that, like, he's like talking about his like Jedi powers and stuff and suddenly just like bust out a shadow puppet. It's like, what's that? Oh, it's a, it's a Bantha. It's from my home planet. <laughs> It, I guess you wouldn't know. There's like, you know, it's a huge galaxy with like millions of... What's that? Oh, it's a... Uh, it's a dewback. They look a lot like Banthas, I guess, in, in shadows. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not using the force at all. He's just doing... I think that would like actually make it, make, uh, it kind of... That would make him seem a little bit more uh, endearing to the audience, I think. It, re- it reminds me of... Uh, this is years ago. Um, you know, I was... I was being my super cool self was trying to uh, put the moves on a, on a young lady. And I was just uh, showing her constellations for some reason. (laughs) And I just made them all up. (laughs) 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 And I think she knew they were made up, but she thought it was funny. So, Well, here's how it came off to me. So he does his, or he says something to her and then his laugh and it's the editing and stuff made it seem pretty forced in a couple of spots. And then suddenly he's just, doing these shadow puppets and he's like is this doing anything for you anything <laughs> and then he starts laughing again and hot, like, shadow puppets. yeah he was really like checking in so um my hot cold give me throw me a bone let me know how i'm doing so it's like it's like he was taking it seriously while he was doing it which made it funnier to me yeah yeah he was getting really into it what if that is like we don't really know anything about the the hawk people so maybe this is how they do things that's like a, a traditional like courtship ritual that it's like you just do like you act like you're a kindergartner and you, I don't know, maybe they're just like an entire infantile, like race of, of hawk people. And it's like, uh, it's like, uh, the, the creatures in, uh, what's the, uh, uh, the time machine or like in the distant future, like the bourgeoisie of, uh, evolved into these like meek, helpless, like leisure oh, creatures. The, the yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's what the hawk people are like. They're just like. These uh, infantile man children who <laughs> this is how they communicate with each other. This is like a high form form of high art here with the shadow puppets. 
he's actually really good at it. And like, if you were from this culture, you know, if you were sensitive to their differences that you would, you would be like, actually, I could see what's going on here. This is pretty, this is deep stuff. It's, it's <laughs> like he's spitting poetry at her. <laughs> it's bunnies. When flash finally wakes up, he's been, he's been, uh, nearly killed. Right. And then he's put in some kind of like, it looks like a, a cat scan type thing that Zarkov puts in. I love how Zarkov shows up just so he can do this. Um, he's always where they need him. Oh, we, I skipped over like a, so flash gets tortured in this one, right? Yes. Yes. So that's a thing. It seems like that's a, that's a, there's a lot of mind control and a lot of torture in these, in these serials. I, I guess it's just a, it's a thing you can do that gets people's attention. Um, so other notes, Fulton is an eight year old boy. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. So we've got, yeah, another kind of, uh, Flash is brought back from the brink of death, something that happens in Star Wars all the time. Flash uh, rejects Princess. This is a great scene, I thought. Flash rejects Princess Aura and she and, and uh, then just kind of stands there. But you know, you know the scene I'm talking about, right? Where she's mm-hmm. like, she's like, no, I could make you a king, right? Uh, and uh, don't you want? He's like, well, I'm grateful. For, you know, you have my gratitude for for saving my life. And she's like, I want more than your gratitude. It's like, wow. I mean, you know, I mean, I just feel like she could do a lot better than flash. Well, who like you've got, uh, who who else is there? That's true. There's not a lot of like, there's gotta be somebody. There's a whole city of Hawkmen. The Hawk. Yeah. Surely there's some attractive Hawkmen in there. Oh, she could do the The Mr. Clean guy for the shark man. You know, that guy, like not the, not the king of the shark man. He looks like a schlub, but, uh, but one of his like, uh, Royal guards was a pretty good looking guy, but maybe he's boring. Like I, I stand by my theory that Princess Aura uh, is obsessed with Flash because she thinks that Flash can like uh, stand up to her father, and that's what really attracts her. But I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't. I guarantee you that none of that was in there. It's just something <laughs> I'm putting in there. But you know, the Raylo thing exists. Like people are making up stuff all the time, and it's very real to them. So I can have this, and don't you dare correct me. Okay. Yeah. No. I just. I don't know. I mean, you got to come up with. Re- I mean, that's the thing. Is like Flash is a is a cipher. Like there's really his only character trait is that he's brave and he's a good guy. And, uh, I feel like in, in Dale has even less, less character than that. Whereas aura has some kind of, some kind of something to her that I think is, isn't there in the other characters. There's like, even though she's not necessarily a good person because she's more upfront with her desire for flash. It just seems more believable, I guess, even though she's saying like ridiculous things, but it's like, at least she like, at least you know what she wants. And why? Like she's caressing his muscles and stuff. I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's really overt. And then uh, Flash says something like, "Sorry, Mac, I got another engagement," which is a uh, very Han Solo, except for the Mac, I guess. When did Mac stop being used as like the like? When now we say dude the way that people in the '30s probably said Mac, right? Right, right. Yeah, that sounds about the equivalent. It's like uh, tough luck, Mac. You know, like lights a cigarette and goes like orders a slice of pie or something. I don't know. Whatever people did back then. But it's, we're, we're post-Mac now, and there will be no return of the Mac, I assure you. Um, oh, come on. Come on. Nobody? Nothing You're on your own, man. Return of the Mac? That was a, that was a song. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like it's somehow that I'm... I, no, yeah. no, no. I, I, if anything, I should be apologizing to you. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> 
so anyway, Flash gets sent back to the furnace room. And basically, there's, this, there's this plan to to like explode the furnaces, right? Is it is it uh, Flash or Zarkov who says you will need this coil of wire? <laughs> Zarkov, he, he yeah, yeah, he was ordered to. He was supposed to attach it to Flash to keep him from getting right. away, right? And instead, he's right, like, yeah. I got a bitchin' idea. Let's put it on this shovel. Yeah, he totally MacGyver's this whole thing, right? Yeah. Like, there's this, yeah. So, um, it's pretty cool. I like this. There's a jailbreak sequence, which is, like, another thing that, like, just has to happen at some point in uh, any kind of adventure series. Actually, I, um, wonder, I don't know if you guys have, have talked about this at all yet, but maybe it's just because I've been, I've been watching a lot of uh, Mystery Science Theater, but... Man, in this like '30s, like and into like the the '40s and '50s sci-fi, furnaces were a big part of it. Like they're all like in sort of like whenever anybody is enslaved anywhere, they're yeah. in some sort of like furnace, and there's some sort of explosion, and that's how they get away. Yeah, these are like the I think they call them the atom furnaces. So I guess he's just shoveling raw atoms. <laughs> generic atoms into the into the into the burner. I wonder whether that's just because that's how things were powered like their closest analog to this thing would be like a ship right and yeah that's what i was thinking of was the titanic yeah they, i guess there's weren't there people down there just shoveling stuff into the burners yeah to yeah i guess that's why maybe and it's like a, obviously like it's really a, a dirty job that if you could get away with making criminals do it and that's what you would do i guess but i don't know i found the whole like the furnace the furnace room stuff in this it was top notch i thought that that as far as like uh, slavery furnace scenes go in, in sci-fi movies, this one was pretty good. Now, um, there was one thing about that that I thought was pretty curious is that they give their slaves breaks and they had a second crew of slaves come in to just work for, what, 15 minutes. They had a, a completely separate yeah, crew of slaves. It's like, I think it's supposed to be that like the radiation from the furnaces is like they don't understand like what radiation really does to you. Like this is back when uh, they used to make glow in the dark watches by having uh they they'd hire women to use little paintbrushes, dip them in radium and paint them on the hands of the clock. And what do you do to uh, wet a brush when, when you need to make it pointy again, you lick it, yeah. you lick it. Yeah. And so a lot of, a lot of uh, women got uh, cancer of the mouth that way. Um, so people didn't really know <laughs> what the stuff was or what it did, but they had an idea that it was bad for you. They just didn't know exactly for sure what it was. And of course this just gets more tragic the more you follow that discovery. But so you learned a new depressing thing today. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that was, I think that's what they're, they're implying is like just standing in front of this open, like atomic blast furnace will like deplete your stamina so quickly. But yeah, I don't really, I mean, so back to flat, we're kind of coming up with any possible reason not to talk about it. So the shift changes <laughs> and there, everybody get behind the lead wall. <laughs> so you take a break behind the lead wall <laughs> which is like about waist high. So everybody has to sit down. And uh, I love the guy who's working that huge, like arbitrary dial in the back. You have to have huge arbitrary dials. You know what? That reminds me of, this is very not vintage sci-fi, but it reminds me of those like CNC music factory videos where there'd always be like the gigantic slow moving fan and somebody like in silhouette dancing in front of it. <laughs> like there'd be like a giant dial. It's just like some kind of like hip funky house music factory. House music would have made the scene better. And then, then they create like this shovel bomb type thing, and that's that's pretty much what happens. So it has something to do with the wire, I think. I don't really remember exactly how that, or maybe it never. I never knew how that worked, but it's a wire and a shovel, and that equals an explosion. 
Yeah, he does something like hucks the shovel into the something or other, and yeah. Oh, was it the, was the wire going to kill him if he ran away? Is that it? Yeah, it was something. It was supposed to be put on him to basically keep him in prison to keep him from trying to fight back. So yeah, he uses that. So that's kind of I like I like the escape. Uh, I like uh, seeing somebody escape from imprisonment pretty much every time they you know if it's done even sort of well because it just feels good. It's like yeah, and then like all the other prisoners are free. But yeah, so and then uh, we might as well just go right into episode eight, uh, the tournament of death. It's a great so we yeah, yeah, it is. And we get another death tournament. The title assures us of that. Um, it's probably like the fifth one in this series. I kind of lost count. There's like a death tournament and a new kind of ray gun in every single episode. I like uh, some great Ming dialogue here. Uh, this continuance interference annoys me. Uh, this is uh, well put. That's pretty much, I guess maybe that's why I like Princess Aura so much is that she's not always telling you exactly what she's thinking at that moment. Like every other character in this seems to be doing that. Like there's no, even Ming doesn't really have any plot. He just kind of announces what his intentions are at all times. And, uh, or is the only one who will kind of lie to people and kind of withhold information. And you, you can, there's something that, that's being kept, kept back from the audience. So the atomic furnace fails. The whole city tilts exactly 45 degrees <laughs> in the air, uh, because the, the atomic thing that's keeping it you know, a float in the clouds is, is not, so it, it just kind of just immediately like just goes lopsided. And then uh, flash uh, is then it kind of gets right out of the prison and, and then he's immediately like marshaled into another death tournament. In this case, the winner gets a kingdom and yeah, the, the, the kingdom and uh, the bride of his choice, <laughs> which is always lovely. Always lovely. Yeah. Well, I mean, we get to this later, but flash never takes them up on that offer. Like he, he says later on, it's like, I'm not good at like, this isn't how I'm, you know, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's, he's nice about it. Like, he's not, you know, he's very much like anti that, like he doesn't do things the medieval way that they do on Mongo. But yeah, that's, uh, just, uh, yeah, there's that. So I, I don't know. That's like just another one of those like male power fantasy gambits. I think that you see in these things a lot where it's like by like, Besting my opponent, I will immediately be jumped ahead several stations in life. And he gets, he, he flashes made to fight the quote unquote mighty masked swordsman of Mongo, um, f who looks like a fat Cobra commander. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know how else to describe him. That's he's got the executioner's hood and he, yeah. And, uh, they even give flash like a jaunty little, like death, death duel attire with like a cape and everything. It's pretty dashing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It it really looked sharp when he had the one hand behind his back, you know, fencing style as they fought. Yeah, that was pretty cool. So he fights Fat Cobra Commander. And in my notes, I say, that's that's not Baron, right? That's not Prince Baron, right? No way. That that would be too stupid. Oh, oh. <laughs> like, I seriously was, like, writing that as I was watching. <laughs> it's like, that can't be what they're doing, right? Um, so there's a three-minute long fight sequence, which is, like, over 10% of the running time of, like, the actual, like, film story time of this of this episode I was, i'm it's, glad you have a number on that because i felt like that scene went on forever that's yeah i mean you the thing that they do in star wars movies is that whenever there's a fight or usually whenever there's a fight it's not just cutting away to like reaction shots of people in the room watching it happen they like cut away to other things that are happening elsewhere right and that makes it so it doesn't really you know the more time you spend watching the fight, like the more different stuff they have to do to keep your attention. In this one, it's just, it's just the same thing. They're just clacking sticks together for three minutes. I did time it out. 
I um, I wrote in my notes the sword fight was painfully long, <laughs> but I didn't get the exact runtime. I'm glad you did. I had to I had to know because when you think about it, it's like these episodes are like 20 to 22 minutes long. Three minutes is an eternity. It just it just goes nowhere. And you compare this to like other uh, fights like sword fights, like the really good, you know, like the, you know, obviously they weren't like an adventure series, which were done really cheaply and not, you know, nobody really knew what they were doing. And you look at say like Douglas Fairbanks and Robin hood, um, in the twenties, um, or the Errol Flynn Robin hood, which is really great from, I think 1938. And you get this really dynamic, they make sure that they're going somewhere. That's like where that famous like staircase sword fight that you've probably seen parodied a million times is in the Errol Flynn Robin hood. And you know, it's on a staircase. So they're doing something. It gives them some danger other than the danger of being poked with a, a, with a sword, you know, that there's something else for the people to contend with. And it's like, you know, they could fall off this ledge. And when you just have like a big empty stage and, uh, and then cutaways to like, you know, Dale looking, uh, horrified and worried and Ming with like a look of like, uh, about to be sated bloodlust or something. And, um, yeah, so the fight ends, uh, I'm constantly amazed by how often uh, the emperor, the, the, the self-proclaimed emperor of the universe allows an armed man to just walk right up to him. Like Flash is always like walking right up within striking distance to Ming. No sweat. Like the, the Ming's secret service really are crappy at their jobs. They should be getting in his way all the time. But they never like Flash never takes a, a shot at him. But he's always right there with like with like arm to the teeth and like two feet away from Ming. Do you th- do you think he just knows that Flash is the good guy, so he's he's that's not what he's going to do? I yeah, I mean, there's two ways you could go with this, right? When you have like a, just a supremely evil mastermind type character, like I wouldn't really call Ming a mastermind because all of his plans are terrible, but um, you know, when you've got this like evil lord type guy, like you can have him just be so evil that they can't fathom that other people would be good or or do the right thing, which is um, you know. I feel like we see a lot of that kind of those kinds of mistakes happening in the news these days. Like just people who are so corrupt, they just can't imagine that anybody else would be like straightforward and honest, or he could, or he could be like the kind of person who's evil. He knows he's evil and he like, finds good people to be truly amusing and, and, uh, knows, you know, yeah, I don't know. I think the main thing is that they just, they, they didn't have a lot of space to work with. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's kind of like you just, you can't, you can't have the characters always be really far apart and you want to have your hero confronting the villain, but it does seem kind of weird. Cause I'm like, just stab him, dude. Like you, you've, you've chumpetized his guards like so many times at this point, like you have a pretty good chance of uh, making it out of here alive. So go for it. So uh, then it's revealed that Prince Baron was in fact, the fat Cobra commander. Uh, and that he planned to beat Flash is a chance to get his kingdom back and then marry Princess Aura. So we've got a love triangle now. Um, uh, and then we're introduced to uh, Ming totally goes back on his bargain, I guess. Or maybe he just swaps out opponents for him because it didn't really finish the fight. And he fights the Orangopoid, I think, is the, which is another man in an ape suit. It is um, amazing. When that creature came out, like, I, I just, I loved it. It is hilarious. He's got this horn on his head. Do you think it's an ape suit that they just glued a horn to, or do you think they made it to? Um, I, I actually had a note about that. And at first that's what I assumed. The, the face was different enough that they, I mean, they would have had to fabricate that whole thing, but man, everything else about it, it, it'll tell you what it reminded me of. Do you remember the song? Um, 
uh, Robert Palmer did a version of it. I, I didn't mean to turn you on, but it was a, a girl sang it, and it was had this very low budget music video. This was probably in around 1985 or 86, and it was uh, like this guy dressed up as a gorilla and it was like this whole play on King Kong and she's apologizing, you know, she's singing the whole, I didn't mean to turn you on to him because, you know, he's kidnapped her and holding her in his giant monkey hand, you know, far yeah, clearly, above the clearly she needs to apologize. Yeah. Well, she should, but yeah. anyway, it reminds me of that, like his motions and everything. I'm like, this dude is going to moonwalk any second. I just yeah. know it. <laughs> his pantomime, the ape guy's pantomime is pretty good. I thought, like I thought that this like compared to the sword fight which which we just saw in this episode the three minute sword fight I felt like the choreography on this was was uh, was good like especially because like I think Buster Crab really sells like the struggling thing like he's good at like pretending to be struggling for his life right it's like it's kind of like I guess like pro wrestling in a way although I don't really know anything about that but you know you're basically pretending to get punched and stuff so like I guess you have to really you know, I'm sure that there's a difference between like good wrestlers who know how to act like they're getting hurt and make it believable and bad wrestlers who look like they're faking it. But, um, speaking of wrestler, I actually had a note about that, that the masked fighter, I put the masked guy would make a great pro wrestler. And then my next thing was it was Baron, you know, cause I was floored. Yeah. But, I mean, he had the whole professional wrestler thing. He going. does. He does. He's like a Sergeant Slaughter type guy to me. He's got the little mustache and everything. Emily, you remember stuff about like early eighties pro wrestling, right? You were all in on this. Um, I know more about late eighties wrestling. Cause then I would have been like six or seven and like watching some of my brother. So I remember like Andre the giant and all that stuff. Andre the giant is like, it's kind of a shame. He wasn't in more movies. Cause he'd be like in this kind of movie, he'd be perfect. Like you fight like a guy in an ape costume. Well, you've got like a guy who's gigantic. Oh, he'd be a great, he would have been a great, like, Flash Gordon villain. And he had more charisma in a way than, like, what's that other guy, Tor Johnson, right? The other gigantic guy from, like, it was in the Ed Wood movies. Yeah. He he was a pro wrestler, too. And he, he was, but he was, like, he was big, but mostly he was just grotesque looking. Whereas, like, Andre the Giant, like, was just, like, even bigger. Yeah, I mean, saying that this movie, this this show would be better with Andre the Giant, is that's uh, that applies to a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, f I feel like that's the key. Like in any kind of fight scene, what I like to see is the actors acting like they are actually scared or are in trouble or that there's something bad's going to happen to them if they lose. Um, I loved in uh, uh, Force Awakens that last fight because there was like real, you know, like people were struggling against each other and, and, and seemed like their lives were on the line. And they reminded you that actually a lightsaber is a really stupid weapon because if you, it is like a white hot death rod that you don't really need to swing very hard to make it effective. You could just poke him with it. But if you swing it too, if it, if it gets pushed too close to your face, like it's a real problem. And uh, I, I thought that was great. I don't know. I guess, I don't know. I, I think that's, that's pretty close to the consensus opinion though. I think it seems like most people liked it, but that I've talked to. Yeah. I don't know. What else should we do with this? Anything? I don't know. I'm trying to think of what about it, like specifically reminds me of, of things that were carried over into star Wars. Uh, well, I mean the, 
the well, we could do this. I mean, one thing I do like to do is like, is there anything from this, uh, from these episodes that you'd like to see in a future Star Wars movie? Because we're going to get Star Wars forever, so they're going to start like needing to go back to the well at some point. So we could do them a public service and kind of like, here's okay. something you I'm could try. Die in a gorilla suit with a unicorn horn. I I love this creature so much. What what do you like? He's what? Here's here's the thing: is that Ming calls out the orangopoid um in this fight but ming just got there so either ming knew that there was an orangopoid on this castle which means i guess like all of the castles in his his, his uh, kingdom would ha- come stocked with one of these guys or that he brought him with him he brought the monster with him like like in his little rocket ship had like a little trailer with like the monster in it and it just like parks outside like he just takes it with him just in case you know you never know when you're gonna need gonna need your monster maybe he has like a whole menagerie of these he creatures seemed, that he travels with. He seemed really attached to this one. Well, he's really upset when it dies. Yeah, because he doesn't care about, like, earlier in the in the series, like, he sends other people to fight Flash, and, and Flash kills him pretty promptly. And he doesn't seem to care. But this one, I think, was special to him. Yeah. I, uh... It, it really kind of sad, the 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 lonesome death of this orangopoid, which, which happens in the next episode. Spoiler alert flash wins um but uh i i just feel like he he kind of got a raw deal in life he was just all he's he's just trotted out there to fight um i wonder if there's like a really sad orangopoid keeper like the rancor keeper who's just devastated What's up, uh, uh, faithful friends and fans and listeners around the globe? Uh, this is Diamond Rob back here for another uh, another mid podcast coffee break. Um, we're wow, we're almost done. We're almost done with the introductory series, the Flash Gordon series, and uh, after that, uh, we start with uh, the first of our seven part series on uh, the Ryan Johnson selections. Uh, his uh, the movies he screened for the cast of the Last Jedi. Uh, the first one is To Catch a Thief by Alfred Hitchcock. And it's going to end a day before the release of... Uh, actually, it will end probably the day that most people go see The Last Jedi. I think the last one will drop on the 14th, if not sooner, of December. And that will be doing uh, the last of the series, uh, Three Outlaw Samurai. So if you want to really have a leg up on every one of your sucker friends who don't know jack about uh, movies and uh, think they know Star Wars, but they have no idea, do they? You're going to know the real, the real deal. You're gonna know the. You're gonna have all the all the. I, I mean, look. You, you gained a podcast. You lost some friends. Look at it that way, I guess. Um, so anyway, uh, again, I don't have uh, show up on iTunes yet because I'm an idiot. Uh, there's no excuse now. Uh, I got to do it. But uh, because of that, I can't uh, answer questions that are that you leave in five star reviews. But by the time you're hearing this, you know who knows when you're listening to this now. Uh, that might mean that we're up on iTunes, and uh, if so, welcome. But yeah, but since I don't have those questions, uh, as I've been doing, I've been making my way through the uh, giant Twitter list. Last show, I did my favorite moments from each of the prequel trilogy, each movie in the prequel trilogy. And this time, my favorite moments from the uh, the original trilogy. Uh, I can do that. So question number 20 is your favorite A&H moment. I'll say, I'll say it's the... Uh, 
I'll go with my old standby. It's the Death Star conference room scene. It's my favorite. It's got to be. It's it's at least my favorite bad guy scene where there's not. It's not not an action scene. It's not like a big lore scene. But that that scene gets so much weird information out there that builds the galaxy up. And, and just remember, this this was, movie was released. There's no background material at all. Like a couple hipsters might or not hipsters really at that point they would be stone cold dorks my people but they those people could have could have read the novelization as early as 1976 there's a scene right so it's the conference room and everybody's uh, sitting around the old conference table and it's all these uh uh imperial high command muckety mucks and some of them are calling each other governor even though they're wearing the same military uniform as the as the admirals and the generals and there's so many of them right so what I like about this is the way the scene originally began was like uh, they were talk, complaining about Darth Vader and like this Sith Lord inflicted upon us by the Emperor. But yeah, so they don't like him. He's like a wizard to them. Like I just like the idea of like normal people in the Empire who are like super powerful people, right? These are like the top brass, the biggest dudes in the military uh, or the Imperial Navy or whatever it is, the Starfleet. And they have to contend with this freak in a robot suit wearing bondage gear in a, in a walking iron lung who just prances around and just bosses people around. Doesn't seem to care about anything, but he's obedient. He's under Tarkin's command, and Tarkin apparently does not try to rein him in at all unless he has to. So everybody hates him. It's like, why do we have to deal with the space wizard? I wish the space wizard wasn't here. The worst part of my job might be the space wizard, guys. What do you think? It's a pretty great job, but man, the space wizard, I don't like him. So, so it gets a lot of stuff out there. It's like your, your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes, right? Like it's, it's a great, like it's a schlocky delivery, but it's delivered with conviction and it's really good. So anyway, but yeah, my favorite moment from the Empire Strikes Back is Yoda lifting up the X-Wing out of the swamp. It is, it's, it gives me chills every single time. It's it is the ultimate expression of of the force and what the force means is kind of like a metaphor. You know, it's it it, it continues on what what the force was in, in the original Star Wars, which is like it's kind of a and so the force is like mystical, magical, etc. That's great, and I love that. But there's like even the mystical, magical part of it is tied to your like willpower, to your like to like the not just just. That I mean, it's all in that line too, right? Like Luke almost gets the X-wing a little bit out of the water, but then it just sinks deeper, and you're like, "Oh no!" And then Yoda, like, is just like he's a muppet, and he's like, you know, he does it, and he like he pulls the X-wing out of the water, and Luke's response is, "I don't believe it," and Yoda just goes, "That is why you fail," right? It's cliche to mention this as your favorite moment, but seriously, like that is it. That's a sure thing that you won't be able to do it if you don't think it can be done, and. um so that's great. Favorite moment in uh, Return of the Jedi. This is a this is a tricky one. Um, I'm really torn because my, I'm gonna say my favorite moment is the whole like the way the Emperor is like teasing, toying with Luke, and messing with his head. It's great, and Ian McDermott's performance in that, and he's a young young probably about my age right now when he's doing that role, and he's under all that makeup, and he just gets it out there. And by the way, like credit to Ian McDermott because initially he was told to do the voice of the guy who was the emperor in the empire strikes back who i can't remember clive and he was like oh i know that actor and i know that he probably had no clue what character he was playing or what the character was supposed to be or what would be happening in the next movie so i don't think that's how he would have played him can i just do it the way i think he would have done it and they and to their credit they're like you know what it's not going to match up but it doesn't have to you get to the emperor the throne room and just like the whole like uh 
where he's like, uh, just, you know, he's got Luke's lightsaber and he just goes, you want this, don't you? Like, that is a great, great delivery, a great line. It just shows, like, that's what the audience wants. That's why it works so well is because he's taunting the audience. The audience wants to see Luke cut the guy down, and he's afraid if he, you know, if he lets let's go, he's going to let the dark side in, you know? Uh, remember, a uh, five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. I'll answer your question if you put it in that five-star review. Also, uh, don't forget to check out my other podcast. It's uh, Hardcore Gaming 101, the podcast, um, where we're ranking the top 47,858 games of all time. Um, that's another uh, good show if you like kind of old weird video games or new weird video games or just like to hear people compare video games arbitrarily to other video games. I guess we're done here. I'll just let you get on back into the sweet Flash Gordon discussion. And anyway, since this was kind of an uneventful uh, two episodes of uh, filler here, um, I thought maybe one thing I could do because I did I did just uh, do um, Steele's Colin show and there in the in the Colin show before that somebody asked a question that um, it was I can't remember who it was I apologize to whoever this was um, but I remember your question and and it was uh, it was pretty interesting because they they were asking whether how does the first order give um, so Finn Finn says he doesn't have a name. He's, he's FN2187. Um, but what happens if a stormtrooper is promoted to an officer? Because those people just have normal names. And I thought this, I'd never thought about this before. Um, but it is a pretty interesting question. And although there's not much of a Flash Gordon connection here, um, you do, I mean, there are a lot of, I guess, the, the nameless, faceless uh, dudes in armor um, that work for Ming. We do talk about Ming's crappy secret service. So, uh, the bad guy incompetence and their weird, uh, overly complicated, uh, hierarchies and stuff like that. What do you guys think about that? I mean, should we, I, I did want, I did prepare an answer for that. Um, so I felt like I might as well use it up. Uh, but what did you, I thought that was a great question. I wish I could remember who asked. Um, it, it was really good. And I didn't get to call in on that show. And I was thinking, Oh man, Oh, here's what I think. And What's your take on it? That'd be. Yeah. I mean, I thought Steele was giving me homework. So he said I was going to have to have an answer and then he, he didn't bring it up again. So little continuity between the episodes, Steele. Each one gets, it's just a blank slate for you, isn't it? Um, <laughs> nah, it's like, he's got, he does so many shows. Like how can he possibly remember all that stuff? Uh, I don't, I totally get it. Um, but I mean, so the lines I remember from the movie, there, there isn't much, but all we really know is that, um, is that general Huck says that my men are except, exceptionally trained programmed from birth. And later Finn says, I'm a stormtrooper. Like all of them, I was taken from a family. I'll never know and raised to do one thing. But my first battle, I made a choice. I wasn't going to kill for them. So I ran. Um, and then later, and we, so we know that Finn worked in sanitation on at Starkiller base before his first mission on Jakusa. That gives us some idea of what kinds of things you get promoted to, I guess. Um, 
but it's kind of, I know that there's a story, a short story by Greg Rucka that I haven't read um, from that before the awakening book that's supposed to be about Finn's training. But I know all I know about it really is that it doesn't quite match up with the final script of force awakens, which is to be expected because they write these things um, at the last, you know, they, they, they're changing stuff at the last minute and the people who write the novels and stuff have no real hope of keeping up 100%. Um, well, in, in that book, it's, he's every, all of his training is simulated and it's basically the vibe I was getting was, was a lot like, uh, the holodeck on star Trek next generation, mm-hmm. right? Where it's all being scored and there's, you know, what's considered the proper answer and improvisation, you know, leads to all these discoveries, but they did that in an effort to make it to where his first battle was the one on Jakku. Sorry about that. I didn't realize okay. my... Actually, I have another question now, which I hadn't really thought of before, but... So, are there just... Like, does the First Order, or I guess maybe it's something we would have seen with the Empire before, do they just have a whole bunch of kids somewhere that they're training yeah. to be eventual stormtroopers? This is this is one of the many problems, Emily, with the stormtrooper staffing policies of the various... <laughs> bad guy regimes in star Wars is that none of them make any sense. Um, and, and even behind the scenes, like when George Lucas would be asked about these things, every time he answered a question about stormtroopers, the answer was completely different. Um, he never made up his mind about who or what they were. Uh, but the idea, for example, going back to the clones, right? So you've got one side of this conflict that has nothing but droids to fight for them which seems really expensive but the good thing about droids is you don't have to feed them you don't really have to educate them you don't have to train them you program them and then they do what they're told um with the clones you have to like literally you they don't they're born and you feed them and educate them and it's really expensive and it's the same thing with the first order like it's for all intents and purposes like why would you want to have all these uh people in your essentially in your, in your military that are not serving any purpose and you're just using up valuable resources, keeping them alive and, and fed. And, uh, you know, you're, you're like, you're basically, you're covering their healthcare, you're covering everything. Um, and, uh, that's a really expensive way of doing it. Um, if they operated like a normal fascist regime and just conscripted people, it would be a lot more efficient. Um, so, not that everything in Star Wars has to make sense. It doesn't. But I'm just saying, like, you know, it's kind of it is kind of weird because if if he was raised from birth, you're thinking like there's some first order like nanny bot or something out there that raises them or wh- how does it work? Do they are they allowed to have toys? You know, like it's just these are weird questions. This It's one of those things that they can refer to in the movies. And as long as you don't see it, it's fine. But if they showed it to you, it would seem dumb. So it's kind of like. Right. I, I don't. Well, because at the same time, you obviously still have some sort of um, officer training school going on because you have people like Cox. So there is I mean, that's that's true. And so there's a there's a there's a the the questioner as good as this question is, the the question does assume that you would that they do promote stormtroopers above stormtrooper position. Um but that's probably, although it is kind of weird that their boss of all stormtroopers is only a captain, the ranks in the Star Wars military 
organizations don't make any sense. Like the rebels have literally one general for like every five non-generals. There are so many generals in the rebel Alliance, so many. And there's like only a few other people who are considered like less than generals. Like there's, there's like a captain here or there or something like that. And princess Leia is, is basically is allowed to give like field orders in like send troops into battle uh, and has no real rank at all. She's never made a general, but she's telling people what to do and issuing orders. And so it's, it's, it's weird there. Um, yeah, but, uh, so I don't know that there would, so there are a couple, my theory is, is basically that, um, first of all, like, like to answer any star Wars question, I think that the best answer is always going to be the most dramatically interesting one. Um, the first job of any like kind of speculation would be to not be boring. Uh, because that's what you would, if they were to make a, a movie about it, they would not choose the boring answer. If that was going to be a plot element of a movie, it would be an exciting answer or as, as exciting as possible. And, uh, so my theory is that the first order gets its baby stormtroopers one way or another. Um, it either gets them before they can form memories of their parents and in Finn's case, before he can remember his name. So he had a name, but he doesn't remember it and it's withheld from him. And maybe the ra reason to do this would be to, to, to it's to, you know, the per point of doing this was, to, would be to train them from birth uh, to instill absolute loyalty, right? Maybe in the first order, getting a name is a sign that you can be trusted absolutely and that your loyalty is beyond question. And so it, nobody's worried that you'll place family or your home planet over the needs of, of the first order. And so either the first order knows the uh, children's birth names and keeps them secret until they're promoted and allows them to know at that point, or it gives them um, new names afterwards. And, and, um, but I think the birth names would be more dramatically interesting uh, because it'd be interesting. Like what, find out what my parents really named me would be a, you know, that's something that a character would want to know and everybody would understand that. Um, and it kind of reminds me of how, like, in, um, if you ever read, like, memoirs of uh, people who are, like, POWs in World War II or Vietnam or something, and how the, the, the prison, uh, prison camp guards and, and, and commandants or whatever they were called, they kind of, like, doled out privileges as a way of kind of making these powerless prisoners feel like they owed uh, their, their captors something. Right, right. And I know that this happened in... Um, POW camps a lot that they'd give like prisoners cigarettes because being nice to people makes them more willing to talk and it makes them feel like they owe you something. It's the same reason why it makes sense for people to give out samples in the grocery store is because you feel like you owe them something because they gave you something. You don't, you're not thinking rationally, you're thinking emotionally. And, uh, and I know that the Nazi air force and the Chinese during the Korean war actually proved that this sort of method of dealing with prisoners was more effective than torture. Like it was, be it was better at getting them to either, um, uh, reveal compromising information or, or, um, or like kind of, uh, not, you know, you know, those videos that they have of like, you know, prisoners from Vietnam, like saying stuff about, you know, criticizing the American government and stuff like that. It's like the way they got them to do that was just like through a gradual series of like giving them like minor privileges back. So like letting you have your name again, maybe in the first order is one of those things. But yeah, it's like, it's to me, that's an interesting thing. Cause although with Ray, like you see that, or even with Luke Skywalker in the, in the, in the original movie, there was kind of like this like quest to like find out who you were, like reconnect with your, your family, your, your ancestors. And, 
but there's a, there's like a much simpler way of, of looking at that. Just like finding out, like, I don't even know where I'm from. I don't know who, forget knowing who my parents were. Like, I don't know what my real name was. I don't know what planet I was born on. I don't know any of it. I would just like to know that information. You know, like that's, I can imagine like Finn, like wanting that kind of basic identity stuff back in a way. Well, I don't what, know what, yeah. One of the things he says at the beginning of that bit is I was taken from a family I never knew or I'll never know. So he was, it, it, the way he said it, and I mean, mind you, this is just semantics, but I took it as uh, abducted as That's... opposed to, you know, I was raised by baby farmers who had me and handed me over, you know, along with also, you know, get one baby, get a free case of tomatoes, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I felt like it was that he was taken now, how do they determine who to take? You know, is there some sort of algorithm where they show up knowing that, hey, we're going to come and get this kid the second he's born because his parents are, you know, their DNA is this. And so they're going to produce a, a a quality stock. Oh, yeah. It's like a it's like a like a like Plato's Republic type thing where like you breed the guardians and all that. And right. Like mates are. Yeah. Ooh, man, they get into that stuff. That is really I mean, you're, yeah, that's, that's really, uh, you're really hitting the fascist stuff hard when you get into that territory. I don't know. What do you think, Emily? Like, what was, what did you assume that Finn meant? Um, I sort of assumed that maybe they're just like coming into towns or planets and just taking like whole generations of kids. Yeah. That's one way or another, like it's whether they're taking the kids by force, like just kidnapping them, or they're kind of like saying like, you know, everybody who donates a kid gets like a shiny new, you know, uh, you know, Bantha or whatever, whatever people want, you know, like, you know, like, a uh, something that, and this is, this is because we, we were just talking about, um, how like what exactly is the source of Ming's authority over the Hawkmen? And it's, it's a, a much sillier and further removed from reality concept, but there are, that is one of the things that gives like good science fiction, even good, you know, fantasy. It's appeal. I think is that there's something to it that makes you feel like there's gotta be some system here. You know, there's gotta be some reason for it. And, and the dynamics of authority and like how, how the first, like the first order is a, you think that like, this is a weird story that is, I wonder whether they're actually going to tell it or whether they're going to decide that it's easier to believe if you don't look at it happening, which may be true, but how did a remnant of the empire disappear into like an unknown part of space? And then in, in basically one generation come back and they've hollowed out a planet, which is a unbelievably like that is a Herculean feat of ridiculous proportions. Like that is crazy that it would be so expensive and uh, to do that. Like, and then they've got a whole fleet of ships that are apparently all new or so uh, refitted to such a degree that they look completely new. And they've got a leader who clearly wasn't with them when they arrived, I think. So they found this weirdo, this like space warlock and immediately, or not immediately, but eventually came to follow him as their leader. 
uh, and it's just like, what was the status quo in this part of the galaxy before they got there? Like, how did they take it over to the point where they could just take people's children and like, and finance these ridiculous doomsday weapons? Like, how did they do that? All right. So just sometimes you just got to put these things out of their misery. Um, We'll uh, show you some mercy and end this one now. Um, it gets a little bit more interesting in the next uh, two episodes, so stick around. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. And until next time, check out these shadow puppets. Puppet, 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 puppet. <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. You like my shadow puppets. Oh,